So, union with God through the intellectus agens and the uno minobis in Dietrich of Freiberg and Bertolt of Mosburg. Relatively little is known about the Bavarian Dominican Bertolt of Mosburg. Around 1340, he was temporarily in charge of the Studium Generalis of the Dominicans in Cologne. Later, for several years, he exercised the office of vicar of the Nazio Bavarie for his province of Teutonia. The last news we have about Berthold dates from 1361. Around the middle of the 14th century, he wrote his monumental Expositio Superelementationem Theologicam Procli. It is the only work of Berthold that has come down to us at the first Western commentary on the Elementatio Theologica translated into Latin by William of Merbeke in 1268. Formally, the commentary is strongly marked by a compiling method. After three comparatively long introductions, Berthold comments on the 211 paragraphs of the Elementatio Theologica. He divides most of these 211 paragraphs into a suppositum, a propositum and a commentum. In the suppositum, he clarifies basic concepts and their relationships, knowledge of which, in his view, is necessary for understanding the paragraph. In the propositum, he deepens the thesis of Proclus on the basis of individual questions. And finally, in the commentum, Berthold offers a literal commentary of the reasoning that Proclus attached to each thesis. The content of the Expositio identifies Berthold as a representative of the Cologne or Albert School, whose terminology and views of causality and intellect he received and independently developed. Another representative of this school is Dietrich of Freiberg, who was also a Dominican. He was born between 1240 and 1245 and probably died between 1318 and 1320. He was thus a contemporary of Meister Eckhart, with whom he was personally well acquainted. Between the years 1293 and 6, Dietrich was provincial of the province of Teutonia. He also additionally exercised other high offices in the order. After his time as provincial, he obtained the degree of Magister Theologie in Paris and then taught there in the chair, which was reserved for foreigners at Saint-Jacques. Apart from Dietrich, among the German Dominicans of the 13th century, only Albertus Magnus reached this high academic position. Dietrich is author of many writings, the main focus of his interest being on natural philosophical topics and theological philosophical problems with special attention to eschatological questions. His writings were hardly received, with one exception. They found a very eager reader in Berthold of Mosburg. No other author has received Dietrich so to such an extent and in such a breadth of writings as Berthold. For this reason, a teacher-pupil relationship is often assumed between the two. Whether the young Berthold still heard and knew the old Dietrich personally, or whether Berthold only studied Dietrich's works extensively must remain an open question, however. 
As in other teacher-student relationships, there are similarities and differences between Berthold and Dietrich. One such case of agreement and difference is represented by the theories of man's union with God, or more specifically, what role the human intellect plays in that union. On this subject, I would like to highlight a few points, some of which can only be touched upon. These points are... One, Berthold largely agrees with Dietrich's theory about the origin of the intellect. Moreover, he agrees with him in principle that the human intellectus agens can become the form of the intellectus possibilis, whereby the latter is perfected and can know the separate substances. This new state of the intellect they both call intellectus adeptus. Two, for Berthold, however, intellect is not enough to reach the highest level of perfection. This still requires the realization of the human one in the soul, through which or in which ecstatic union with God takes place. Three, in addition to this ecstatic moment, there is also an affective and an ascetic component in Bertolt's theory of the soul's union with God, which are entirely absent in Dietrich's account. Four, unlike Dietrich, Bertolt is convinced that the intellectus adeptus and the unio are already possible in this life, even if only temporarily. Of course, only temporarily. Five, because of the differences mentioned in points two, three, and four, it is more appropriate to speak of mysticism in Bertolt's case than in Dietrich's case. The reason for all these differences is that Berthold received the writings and thoughts of Proclus, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the Dionysian tradition to a much higher degree. As is well known, Proclus and Dionysius gave essential impulses to medieval mysticism. A brief overview of the doctrine of intellectus adeptus in Albert the Great. Before we turn to Dietrich and Berthold, something must be said about the doctrine of intellectus adeptus. This doctrine, which Albert developed in his confrontation with Al-Farabi and Averroes, is first found in his commentary on the De Anima. There, Albert discusses Aristotle's question whether our intellect, which is connected with extension, that is, with space and matter, can know something separate from matter. Despite important differences, Albert's response is substantially inspired by Averroes. According to Albert, man is able to know the separate substances when the ancient intellect, as a result of a gradual process, becomes the form of the potential intellect and thus connects with it. This process is possible because the intellectus possibilis in each act of cognition, not only absorbs the species of the respective object in itself, but also the light of the intellectus agens, causing the knowledge. This light, that is, this active power of cognition, gives the object of cognition its immateriality and intelligibility in the first place. Thus, since the potential intellect absorbs this light in every act of cognition, it becomes more and more similar to the agent intellect. After receiving everything recognizable, 
the potential intellect finally possesses the whole light of the agent intellect. The intellectus possibilis of man has thus acquired its own intellectus agens as its form and is connected with it. Through this connection, the potential intellect is strengthened and can thus also recognize being separated from matter. In this state, the human mind attains supreme happiness and wisdom. Those who have achieved this now know and enjoy the divine realities that God knows. According to Albert, the peripatetics call this state intellectus adeptus et divinus. Man at this stage is perfect and capable of acting insofar as he is man in an action which is at the same time the operation of God, namely to contemplate and recognize the separated substances in a perfect way through himself. This is text one on the handout. Et hoc sic compositum vocator a peripateticis intellectus adeptus et divinus, et tunc homo perfectus est ad operandum opus illud, quod est opus sum, in quantum est homo, et hoc est opus, quod operator Deus, et hoc est perfecte per se ipsum contemplari et intelligere separata. Other statements in his commentary on the metaphysics and in his second commentary on the ethics show that Albert considers the intellectus adeptus once attained to be permanent. Apparently he assumes, however, that this is usually only a habitual condition since the earthly gravity of the body and the lower powers of the soul hinder the constant actual exercise of this supreme activity. In his work, the Intellectu et Intelligibili, written a few years after the commentary on the De Anima, Albert reserves the knowledge of the separate substances for an even higher stage of completion, namely the Intellectus Assimilativus. When the soul recognizes the spirits at this stage, it is enlightened by them and can thus ascend to the simple light of the divine intellect. Albert describes this condition as, quote, a certain participation in the deity. This is text two on the handout. Est autem intellectus assimilativus in quohomo quantum possibile surgit ad intellectum divinum, qui est lumen et causa omnium. And one page later, Jungitur igitur illi ultimo et lumini suo, et mixtus illi lumini aliquit participat divinitatis. The intellectus agens and the intellectus adeptus in Dietrich of Freiberg. Dietrich of Freiberg also developed a theory of the intellectus adeptus, which played a central role in his teaching of the Visio Beatifica. Unlike Albert, who started with a purely philosophical question, Dietrich's doctrine of intellectus adeptus thus has a genuinely theological connection from the very beginning. The pivotal point of Dietrich's teaching of Visio Beatifica is his understanding of the intellectus agens. According to Dietrich's De Visione Beatifica, the intellectus agens is the image of God in man and proceeds directly from God. It is constituted in its essence by contemplating its divine origin. You'll find this on text three on the handout, but this is the only text I will not read now because it's too long, obviously. 
For Dietrich, therefore, when the intellectus agens becomes the form of the intellectus possibilis, it comes to an immediate knowledge of God's essence. This realization and vision of the divine essence is accompanied by immediate union with God. Text four on the handout. Sumta igitur ratione ab ordine intellectus agentis ad deum secundum predicta, concluditur jam primo loco, quod ipse est supremum et ad deum immediatum principium secundum formam, quo immediate unimur deo illa beatifica visione. The happiness of man consists in this union, which is a free gift from God. According to Dietrich, it is possible only in the post-mortem state, that is, in heaven. We know of this final possibility of perfection only because we know that it is promised in the Holy Scriptures. Reason alone cannot conclude that this visio beatifica is possible. On the question of how the agent intellect can become the form of the potential, Dietrich fundamentally departs from Albert's position, which he attributes to the philosophers. For Dietrich is opposed to the idea that the intellectus possibilis takes the intellectus agens as its form by fully acquiring all that is knowable. For Dietrich, it is clear that even if someone reaches the highest level of perfection, he can always recognize only one object. The other objects of knowledge, on the other hand, he only possesses habitually. Consequently, the intellectus possibilis can never be completely in act in this way. Dietrich also emphasizes that the intellectus agens is the active principle for recognizing objects in the cognition process. As an active principle, however, it cannot at the same time be the form of things recognized. Thus, the intellectus agens cannot be united to us essentially by being the form of the recognized objects. Although Dietrich does not mention Albert's name here, this criticism is also directed against Albert's theory. For Dietrich, however, it is still possible to reach the state of intellectus adeptus. The philosophers would use this term to describe the state in which the intellectus agens is united to us like a form, so that we recognize reality as the intellectus agens does, namely through its own essence. According to Dietrich, the necessary condition for this is the full actualization of the intellectus possibilis. God brings about this perfection by infusing into the intellectus possibilis a composite concept of himself. With the conceptual knowledge of God now possible, however, there is still a subject-object relationship between the soul and God. The simple and immediate vision of the divine essence is only possible at the stage of the intellectus adeptus. At this stage, a cognition is revealed to man, which until then was hidden in the intellectus agens, which Dietrich also calls the hiding place of the mind, aptitum mentis a term taken from St. Augustine. The attainment of this stage depends on the willful providence of God and is accomplished by grace alone. See text five. Et dico rationabile esse hoc et non dico necessarium esse, quia huius modi non fit ex necessitate ordinis, quia attendito in providentia naturali, sed contingit ex sola dei gratia et bonis meritis, 
quod pertinet ad ordinem voluntarie providentiae, qui est complementum et consumatio ordinis providentiae naturalis. Dietrich does not here say what he understands by grace and how it works. However, the infusion of a concept of God by which the intellectus possibilis is perfected is probably to be understood as a gratia gratis data. The same probably applies to the subsequent information of the intellectus possibilis by the intellectus agens. The fact that Dietrich mentions good merits in this context, which are obviously rewarded in the process of the perfection of the intellect, implies for a theologian of the 13th and 14th century a habitual grace previously granted. Whatever Dietrich precisely has in mind here when speaking of grace and merit, it is certain that he regards the intellectus adeptus once attained as a permanent state. But this condition is only possible in patria, in heaven. Now we come to Bertolt of Mosburg. Bertolt shares Dietrich's theory that the human intellectus agens is constituted by its recognition of the first intellect. This is shown, for example, in a passage in the commentary on Propositio 167, where Bertolt quotes literally from Dietrich's Divisione Beatifica. Bertolt modifies Dietrich's theory, however, according to his own metaphysical system, based on Proclus and John Scotus Eriogena. For Bertolt, the first intellect is not God, but, that, but the primordial cause, intellect. For this reason, for Bertolt, the attainment of the intellectus adeptus does not yet lead to union with God. From the second half of his work onwards, Bertolt mentions the intellectus adeptus several times, sometimes using the terminus technicus sometimes paraphrasing it with other formulations. Bertolt, however, puts the concept and reality of the intellectus adeptus into a completely different coordinate system than Dietrich. For Dietrich, the intellectus adeptus is a part of the system of Arab peripateticism, even if he adds important additions from the writings of St. Augustine and from the Elementatio Theologica of Proclus. Unlike Dietrich, Bertolt also received the three opuscula of Proclus. In the opuscula, he finds the concept of the unum in nobis, or unum in anima, or unum in us, and also the idea of a hierarchy of levels of knowledge. In the fifth chapter of the opusculum De Providentia et Fato, Proclus mentions five ways of our understanding. In ascending order, these are first, opinion, second, science, third, dialectical cognition of the one as the principle of everything, fourth, simple intuitive insight, and finally fifth, the one in the soul, or with a term taken from Plato, divine madness, in the sense of ecstatic cognition of the divine. In the fourth chapter of the same work and in the opusculum De Decim Dubitationibus, Proclus also mentions sense cognition, which precedes opinion, resulting in a six-level hierarchy of cognition. Bertolt repeatedly associates this hierarchy 
with the three movements of Dionysius. In this, he seems to equate Proclean science with spiral motion of Dionysius, Proclean dialectic with Dionysian circular motion, and Proclean intuitive insight and divine madness with Dionysian direct motion. The term intellectus adeptus is mentioned relatively late in Bertolt's Expositio, appearing for the first time in the Propositio 123. Bertolt identifies the intellectus adeptus there with the human one in the soul. This singular identification, the reasons for which will be discussed immediately, stands in contradiction to several statements in the three introductions and for example, in Propositions 65 and 111, in which the one in us or the one in the soul is clearly said to be superior to the intellect, also explicitly to the intellectus agens. This identification also contradicts other statements in which the intellectus adeptus is distinguished from the unum in nobis, since the intellectus adeptus is apparently only a precondition or preparation for the union of the soul with its own one. Therefore, Berthold usually identifies the intellectus adeptus with the fourth mode of knowledge from De Providentiae Fatu from Proclus. According, according to Proclus, the human intellect in this mode of cognition has, among other things, insight into its own nature and touches the intelligences above itself. Thus, in the act of contemplation, the intellect finally becomes, even though only temporarily, a purely spiritual being. According to Bertolt, this fourth way or stage of cognition can be attained in this life. However, this achievement depends on the will of God, since, it's hap since it happens by grace and is a divine gift. Moreover, in this life, one cannot remain permanently at this fourth stage. This also applies to the fifth mode of cognition, which, strictly speaking, is no longer cognition, but a non-recognizing, supra-rational unification of the one in us with the one in itself, with God. The reason why Bertold is convinced that the intellectus adeptus can only be attained in single moments of rapture, raptim, is apparently the material body to which the human soul is connected. This view is reminiscent of Albert's position in, in his commentaries on the metaphysics and on the ethics. Strangely enough, Berthold never explains how the agent intellect becomes the form of the potential intellect. However, there are indications that he sees the way this happens in science and in the acquisition of knowledge. In this question, too, Berthold seems to agree with Albert whose doctrine of the intellectus adeptus he also largely affirms in other respects. With Dietrich, Berthold shares only the view that the attainment of intellectus adeptus depends on the grace of God. The fact that Berthold identifies the intellectus adeptus once, namely in Propositio 123 with the Unum in Nobis, is probably due to the fact that the fourth and the fifth Proclean levels of cognition are very close to each other and cannot always be clearly distinguished for Berthold, since the text of De Providentia et Fato, which Berthold quotes here, is very difficult to understand, especially in the Latin translation of Merbeke. 
Moreover, Proclus says in De Decem Dubitationibus that already at the fourth level of cognition, one knows according to the one or in a one-like way. This is probably another reason why Bertold once identifies the intellectus adeptus with the unum in nobis, although he otherwise distinguishes them. Classic elements of mysticism in Bertold of Mosburg. Unlike Dietrich, Bertold is convinced that union with God can be temporarily experienced already in this life through the one in us. This experience of union is a classic element of mystical systems. Other such elements include the concept of ecstasy, the pursuit of spiritual asceticism and the consideration of affectivity. All three elements are absent from Dietrich's account of intellectus adeptus, but they are found in Bertolt's Expositio. This is shown by an examination of Bertolt's commentary on propositions 185 and 202, both of which deal with contemplation. On the basis of these two propositions, it also becomes clear that the differences to Dietrich are rooted in Bertolt's reception of Proclus, Dionysius, and the Dionysian tradition. For Bertolt, human affectivity serves to prepare contemplation, but it also accompanies the act of contemplation and is thus a part of it. This is shown by Bertolt's quotations of Dionysius and Richard of St. Victor. A passage from De Divinis Nominibus, which considers union with the supersubstantial and obscure de deity appears in both propositions 185 and 202. Dionysius says here that the holy minds throw themselves into God and lift themselves up with an appropriate love, with holy reverence and in a chaste manner as with wings. So this must be text six. Sanctas mentes, que ipsi sicut est facet decet sanctos se imitunt, sed firme et indeclinabilita ad radium ipsius supersplendentem extenduntur, et commensorato amore convenientium illuminationum, cum reverentia sancta et caste et sancte alas elevantur. With several quotations from Richard's Benjamin Major, Bertolt also names the attitudes of devotio, admiratio, and exultatio as causes for the ecstatic encounter with God. This leads to an alienatio mentis, text 7. Tribus autem de causis ut mihi videtur in mentis alienationem aducimur, ut dicit quinto capitulo. Na modo pre magnitudine devotionis, modo pre magnitudine admirationis, modo pre-magnitudine exultationis. Fit etiam udicit aliquando eus modimentis alienatio correntibus sibi invicem hinc estuantis anime desiderio, ilinc mirando aliquo divine revelationis spectaculo. Sepe enim in mente humana agitur ut, dum nimio celestis desideri incendio uritur, aliquit ex divina revelatione videre meriatur, unde ad illos theoricos excessus adjuvetur. 
Moreover, the soul consumed in burning desire experienced the vision, experiences the visions of divine revelation and the ecstasy of vision. In propositions 185 and 202, Berthold repeatedly mentions spiritual asceticism as a condition for contemplative ascent. He quotes Bernard of Clairvaux, Proclus and Dionysius. According to Bernard, contemplation is associated with inner recollection and liberation from human things. Text 8. Contemplatio est consideratio se in se recolligens et in quantum divinitus adonatur se ad rebus humanis eximens. Hec Bernardus. In his opusculum De Malorum Subsistentia, Proclus mentions that souls ascending upwards have purified their eyes and made the intellect, rather than the senses, the director of the inner life. Text 9. Anime, que purificaverunt anime oculum, quoentia specularentur, que itiam ficerunt intellectum presidem interioris vitae prosensu. The theme of spiritual asceticism also appears in the passages from Dionysius and Proclus, which address ecstatic union with the divine. According to Proclus' de fato et providentia, bodies and senses are left behind during the ascent into the mystical realm of the gods. Text 10. Quomodo et sensum relinquens de orsum et corpora intellectualibus circumspectationibus sursum deducitur circa supermundanorum de orum indeflexas et ut vere mysticas epibolas, it est adjectiones, as Merbeke explains the Greek word epibolas. In the Mystica Theologia, Dionysius calls for the abandonment of the senses and all mental activities in order to attain to mystical visions. Text 11. Tu autem amice Timote, circa mysticas visiones, alia translatio circa mysticus intellectus, forti contritione, et sensus de relinquet intellectualis operationes, et omnia sensibilia et intelligibilia, et omnia existentia et non existentia, et sicut est possibile, ignote consurge ad eus unitionem, quies super omnem substantia et cognitionem, et inim excessu tui ipsius, omnium irententibili absolute, et munde ad supersubstantialem divinarum tenebrarum radium, cuncta auferens et acunctis absolutus sursum agens. In the ecstasy of one's own self, everything is removed and released. The goal is a non-knowing ascent to, to union with God, who is above all substance and knowledge. Berthold presents this ecstatic union in Propositio 185 and Propositio 202 with the same quotation from De Divinis Nominibus. The last text. Qualita autem congregetur ad se ipsam et bono prime uniatur explicat post septimo capitolo dicens, oportet autem videre mentem nostram habere quidem virtutem ad intelligendum quam intelligibilia inspicit, unitionem autem excedente mentis naturam, alia translatio unitatemque superexaltatam, per quam conjungitur ad ea, quesunt supra ipsam. 
Secundum hang igitur divina oportet intelligere, non secundum nos, set totus nos ipsos extra totus nos ipsos statutos et totus deificatos. As the short introduction to the passage that we heard, it is uh, shows it is a matter of uniting with the prime unum. With the, excuse me. It is a matter of uniting with the prime bonum, which for Bertold and Proclus is identical with the prime unum. As the first good and one, God is the absolutely transcendent origin of everything, who exists above all categorical being and encompasses everything. Therefore, our cognition, which takes its terms from categorical being, is, is manifold and refers to objects cannot reach him. This is only possible beyond the nature of mind, namely through the even higher power of unitio or unitas. As many passages from the Expositio show, Berthold identifies this Dionysian unitio or unitas with the unum anime of the Proclean opuscula. He describes the union with the first good and one which is achieved by this power in the words of Dionysius as a stepping out of oneself and as deification. Both terms show that here he does not have in mind a complete fusion of man with God or a complete absorption of man into God, nor does he conceive this union as an irrational or merely subjective event, since it presupposes a long objective spiritual ascent which he describes in propositions 185 and 202 with the schemes of Proclus, Dionysius, and even Richard of St. Victor. The role of philosophy. Finally, I would like to say a few words about the role of philosophy in Dietrich's and Berthold's teachings on union with God. For Dietrich's account, which is developed in a theological treatise on the Visio Beatifica, the philosophical debates on the intellectus adeptus provide important impulses. Philosophy provides concepts and theories with the help of which Dietrich tries to fathom the visio beatifica and to make it comprehensible. Unity with God, however, is not achieved by philosophical means, but by God's action. For Berthold, who is writing a commentary on a philosophical work, even a work from a heathen. Philosophy also provides important impulses and helps to understand the process of becoming one with God. For Berthold, however, philosophy is even more than that, since it maps out the path of spiritual ascent to God and also realizes this path up to a certain point. Beyond this point, however, for Berthold, divine grace is also necessary to ascend further. Maybe this was even the case for Proclus, because uh, Theurgia is very important in his, in his way of life as a philosopher. So it's, somehow he is not a pure philosopher, but also a religious man. Dietrich is known for his harsh opposition to Thomas Aquinas which he also displays on the question of Visio Beatifica. Nevertheless, he has in common with Thomas on this question that he rejects the possibility of intellectus adeptus in this life 
and that he conceives the union with God in very intellectualistic terms. Dietrich's intellectualism, which, with which he even surpasses his opponent Thomas, has its root entirely in Arab, in Arab peripateticism and specifically in its Western Averroist variant, which is less Neoplatonic than the Eastern variant. Berthold, on the other hand, deliberately chooses the Neoplatonic philosophy of Proclus, which he considers superior to Aristotelian philosophy. Doesn't this choice of philosophy to some extent explain why Berthold's thinking has mystical traits, but Dietrich's does not? Thank you very much. It's just stop screen sharing, otherwise I can't see the comments probably. Thank you, Father uh, Paul Helmeyer, for a wonderfully engaging, clear, and original uh, presentation, enlightening us on the, the uh, rich and complex path that the uh, Proctor Dionysian traditions take with the Dominicans. The, uh, once Father Paul uh, switches from screen sharing, I'll be able to see the comment box, and then we'll also be able to start our um, uh, sharing of questions and, and uh, a discussion on the material. Um, so we, we have some people in the virtual class, uh, the virtual aula, the uh, virtual meeting hall, uh, who've also written on these authors. And they are among the lesser known of the medieval Dominicans, but very crucial to see the path that the Rhineland mystic tradition takes and where it comes from. Uh, at the moment, I think we're still screen sharing. So I'm still not seeing the comments. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> what, we, what I also could do as, as Paul is, uh, he is, I am probably, um, it's something we have in common. We're both technologically challenged and he doesn't have the sisters in the office as I do. Um, if one of the scholars in the virtual aula wants to unmute and ask Father Paul Hellmeyer a question, ah. you're more than welcome to do so. I see. Uh, okay. And again, uh, people need to feel, should feel free with the language of their preference. Um, I can see comments. Am I supposed to see comments? Okay. I will get things started as we're waiting for people. So, um, uh, Father Hellmeyer, I was just rereading the sections of Alain de Libera, La Mystique Renan, which is always a stimulating read, even though I don't agree with him when he talks about Albert, but um, so he places in immense proximity, he really insists on this, um, the great proximity on the theory of the intellect, on the, on the intellect between Dietrich and Berthold. Uh, do you think that he might exaggerate because you've, you've drawn some similarities and distinctions. Do you have a sense of that? Uh, I beg your pardon? 
your the general theory of the intellect yeah. in Dietrich and Berthold. Um, so Alan de Libera describes these as he insists multiple times that there is um, um, a great proximity between them. Do you think that this is a fair reading of the two figures? Ah, you, you said if, if Alain de Libera exaggerated. Yes. <laughs> I thought you, you accused me. Not you. Yeah, that's a difficult question. We, we, sh we should check every, every yeah. page where he says that because it depends uh, obviously on intellectus agens, on the, for example, on the origin of intellectus agens. Bertel is very close to Dietrich, even though he's, he th I think, I, I personally think that he thinks that the origin, the, that the direct origin of the intellectus agens is the prim primordial cause intellect. But that's not so uh, such a great difference because uh, of course the, the primordial causes are somehow in God and are somehow identical with God. But when we come to, to the, the way the intellect works, I think there is a, to the point where the intellect possibilis works, there is a, a really a difference between both. And, and some of the Bo school of Bochum complained that very much, for example, uh, Burkhard Moisisch, he was very disappointed to find out that there is such a, a difference between both. Okay. So the floor is open and you can start with a chat box if you're more comfortable with that, or you may also uh, unmute and just identify yourself and uh, speak directly with uh, Dr. Hellmeyer. Unlike me, he was disciplined in his time. And so we have a little more space, attempt time for discussion than yesterday. I have a question if no one else would uh, talk before me. Okay. Let's go ahead. Okay. Uh, I am Giuseppe Vitale. I am doing a PhD at the University of Cologne and uh, University College of Dublin, and um, I'm uh, and my my subject is. Uh, did we meet in Dublin? We did. We did. Yeah. We did that. Uh, we met at, uh, <laughs> it's nice. To, it's nice to see you again. And we met at the conference on Bertold uh, in Dublin, and um, actually, uh, since I remember the paper you give you gave at that conference, I would like to. Um, expand in that direction because uh, if I recall correctly um, in Dublin you spoke about the um, about the influence of like let's say of the, the quotations of from the Bible from the Holy Scriptures in Bertolt's work and today you highlighted this more uh, mystical dimension in, in Bertolt's work uh, and you quoted uh, the, um, the Benjamin Meyer, for example, or Bernard de Clairvaux. So actually, and, and that's a direction that I am 
sort of looking into myself most recently, I was wondering, do you think, would you say that um, Bertolt's work uh, sort of uh, represents, uh, we, we would call it, uh, I don't know, a revival or a defense of this sort of uh, more traditional Augustinian, Boetian, um, Christian theology, like let's say reevaluating something that by that time sort of we could say uh, sort of belonged to the past in a certain sense uh, because the, because then things had been happening since Thomas Aquinas since Duns Scotus etc. Would you say that uh, Bertolt is sort of looking back to a certain uh, more Christian um, more let's say more Boetian tradition. Yeah, that's a, on one hand a very simple question and on the other hand a difficult question to answer. Um, so basically I would say yes, he, he wants to, uh, to make a certain revival of, of the theology, I would say of the 12th century. Um, Somehow he wants to go back, but on, on the other hand, um, if it's, it's always the case when you, when you go back to, some, to, a, to a point in history, then it's, it's, it's never the same. So you can't just take the time machine and go back there and, and, and talk like the people then. And it's, it's, it's impossible. It's always a certain, it's a reception and it's always um, taking something from the, from the back and impl implementing it in the in the present time, um, and this is what what Bertolt does. Obviously, he takes a lot of uh, text from not only from those authors like Richard of Saint Victor, who is not really a main source of Bertolt, but he he uses him also, uh, and he takes a lot of texts from Boethius and not so much of Saint Augustine. Uh, yeah, and he implements it in his new neoplatonic thinking or platonic thinking. He wants to create something new uh, with uh, in the in the in, in the system of Platonism, which he thinks is uh, superior. And that is another reason why he he likes those authors so much and why he receives them so much because he wants to create a new Platonism for his century and. Therefore, for, for this, he, he uses those authors of the 12th century and from the back, from the past. Thank you so much. And um, um, yeah, sorry. good morning. I'm Joanna Sorella, doctoral student in Cologne, and my master thesis was on Bertolt of Mosburg. And yeah, I have. Um, a question uh, in light of the last considerations about philosophy and the role of philosophy in uh, Battle of Mosburg. My question is, in which term we can define theology in Battle of Mosburg and which is, uh, what is theology and what is the definition of theology? Is a natural theology in Battle of Mosburg and in which sense we can say that, um, yeah, theology, uh, are philosophical is philosophical and 
because as we said, um, theology, our true theology by theology, the, um, uh, the human intellect can reach God and yeah, in Berthold. And so in which term we can define theology? Hmm. That's a really difficult question. Yeah. So in the in the in publications publications of the of the last decades, uh, they always thought it, it would be very easy that uh, Christian theology or theology of the faith is just uh, providentia uh, voluntaria, and philosophy is only providentia naturalis. But I found out that this is not true uh, because. Um, Berthold knows, for example, that um, Proclus uh, was talking about uh, Providentia Voluntaria. So it is already also philosophy. So this, this uh, difference of Providentia Voluntaria at uh, um, Naturalis is not apt to, to make a, a difference between Christian theology and, and philosophy. So, I think it's, it is rather easy that or it's, it's quite clear that Berthold knows that when we talk about Holy Scripture, it is Christian theology. And when we do, yeah. And, but the problem is that he also quotes a lot of scripture in, in his philosophical commentary. So in my view, and also in Alain de Libera's view, Berthold is not very interested in this uh, a difference between Christian theology and philosophy. It's simply not, not his main point. It was just showing the name of one. Thank you for the answer. Uh, we still have about five minutes. Um, perhaps, uh, Dr. Hellmeyer, there's a comment by Alessandra Beccarisi. Uh, left about 3.20. If you just scroll up in the comment box, she's asking you about the Dionysian uh, motions that you mentioned in your chart toward the beginning. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, the text in the chat? I don't understand the last sentence. I'm sorry. Can we say that communicate? I think there's a word missing. Alessandra, yeah. if you want to unmute, that might be more uh, might be more interesting as well for us. Yes. No. No. My question is: um, Could we say that uh, Bertold mm. um, means that the movement of philosophical reason lends 
at the mystical vision. Uh, I make a, re, um, a mistake. Communicate, communicate is, uh, um, okay, okay. That was my is a mistake. Yes, mm -hmm. but the, the question is um, in Dionysius' text, um, we find um, a reference to the stress movement, mm -hmm. which Bertold put yeah. in another place. Mm -hmm. yeah? I found that in the philosophical in the philosophical yeah. thinking. So my question is, maybe there is a, um, a relationship. Is it not by chance that Bertolt displays, so to speak, uh, the Dionysian text mm -hmm. in, ah. a, in a... Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so my question is uh, a philosophical movement or philosophical reason length at the mystical vision. There is not a gap between the two movements, but yeah, speaking, of, of uh, course, yeah, they, yeah, they belong together. Yeah, they belong together. Yeah, and there is always an upward and downward in this life, so it's never that you only have the the upper movement, but you you always get down again. And yeah, I found that too that that Bertolt always in in the whole expositio changes the text of Dionysius here. It's yeah, curious, a curious fact. Maybe you uh, you have the explanation for this, yeah. No, it's just a question. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, it's possible. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. All right. We have time probably for one more. I would... Uh, I don't know, uh, Paul, if you want to comment, he just left at 3.25 in the chat box about um, the sources for uh, the eschatology. Where are we now? At 3.25, Liam Ferrer left a comment oh, for yeah. you um, oh, the other. in the chat box. Mm -hmm. Supplementing Bertold and Dietrich's reading. So, uh, does that mean that Bertold has another source that leads him to to think that uh, the, the the union of God is is possible already now in this life? Because yes, he has Proclus, of course. In Proclus, he sees that for Proclus it was possible. I'm not sure if I got the the right. If I got the question right. No, yes, I, I must. I think I then maybe just didn't put that together, Father. So that's my fault. I was wondering where the I, others. I was thinking of it more from the point of view of Dietrich and why Dietrich was, wasn't viewing that. But if he's getting it from Proclus, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And also maybe from Albert too, <laughs> because he was convinced of that too. So there is a question if for Dietrich, 
some sort of raptus would have been possible, but I couldn't find it. Uh, some sort of raptus which happens uh, without intellectus adeptus or not on the basis of intellectus adeptus. I assume that Dietrich would have thought it possible that raptus is possible uh, in this life, but uh, I didn't find anything about that, which is in the treat treatise Divisione Beatifica somehow obvious because it's really only a treatise on Divisione Beatifica in Patria. Uh, 